You're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room from a pile of stuff. Give me a full ballerina skirt and a hint of saloon and I'm on board. Mm. Welcome to the She Became Visible podcast. I'm your host, Renee Steelman. This podcast is my story. It's your story. It's our story. It's all the stories of all the women who one day knew that it was time to remember who they were, who they are, and stand up and be seen. Hello. Okay, I'm gonna. I've got to get set up here. I moved. I moved my stuff because I didn't want to be back in the bedroom. It's too nice of a day, so I have to get reset up. I just. I just realized when I was. Okay, let's see here. Let's see how we're doing. Let's see if I can hear. Can't hear. Woohoo! All right. Can you hear me? Hopefully. Yeah, so I didn't want to be back there. I wanted to be, it's too nice outside. It's too many nice things going on. I didn't want to be back there. So how are you? How is everyone? Did you miss me? I know I was gone on vacation. We went to, we started out in um, Berlin and then we went to Dresden and then we went to uh, a small kind of in-between place called Czech Kilov. And then we, in, then we went to Prague, and then we went to Vienna. So I can't really say I spent much time in Germany. We spent more time in Czech Republic than we did uh, anywhere else, but it was wonderful. And, and it was an inspiration for my podcast today. Because, you know, at the age that I am, I graduated from high school in 1972, And when I went to school, now it very much could have been um, my fault for not paying attention. I am the first to admit that I have a little bit of attention deficit disorder. And um, so it may have been partially my fault for not paying attention, but I don't think all of it was. So I did not learn anything about anything more about Christopher Columbus than in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And I didn't learn, and I learned all about the fabulous Thanksgiving and in Jamestown and the, and how the pilgrims helped out the indigenous people and didn't hear anything about the trail of tears. Okay. And, uh, I didn't really hear much about anything because I pretty much was interested in, was I going to date or wasn't I going to date? And was I going to prom or wasn't I going to prom? Because those were world crisis things for me to worry about. Okay. When I was in high school. And that's a sad story. I can't even delve into that right now. It would be a very sad podcast. But regardless, anyway, so I didn't really know that much about World War II. I didn't, I wasn't a big history fanatic. Um, But after learning more about church historical truths 
it made me more interested in world historical truths. And so for the last three years, I've been delving pretty heavily into historical, um, whether it's, you know, world history as far as Roman conquering things, um, Christianity, Mormonism. I'm pretty much, I don't know how much more I can take. I understand it. But um, so there's just, uh, you know, American constitutional truths, just all kinds of truths I've been delving into. And, you know, I have a gift, right? I have a gift. I have this fabulous rock. And I have a hat, you know, right? I have a hat. I can put the rock in a hat and I can look. Oh, oh, look. And I found all kinds of truths with my rock, with my with my seer stone. Okay, why do I bring that up? I bring that up. Because tonight we're going to talk, jeez, kill my countertop. Tonight we're going to talk about, do you have a line in the sand? Is there something about a historical truth? And of course, obviously today we're going to be talking about church historical truths. As members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, otherwise known as a Mormon, is there a line in the sand for you that you would say that's that's I can't if if I find out this truth I can't I can't stay on this side any longer is there a truth I ask my true believing husband that all the time what is there that would be the oh hell no thing for you he hasn't really come up with one yet um, he says that if they brought back polygamy, that he would not follow that, that doctrine. If they brought back polygamy, he would not follow that. But that does not mean he would leave the church because once he read some apologetic information and found out that not everyone followed the law of polygamy in Brigham Young's days, not everyone did. And so when he found that out, it kind of gave him a get out of jail free card. Like he said, I wouldn't, that is one thing I would not do. And I'm like, mm -hmm, well, we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> anyway, so, but the reason I bring that up is because the rock in the hat was what said, oh my gosh, because my way of thinking is, if you've lied about that, if you've hidden that historical truth, what else are you lying about? And this is where my cognitive dissonance and my confusion gets started with others who find out about the rock and the hat and they go, oh, well. So I was deciding, how, what do I title this podcast about today? Oh, well, or Hell no. And there are, I'm a, I know I'm a black and white thinker. And so for me, when I found out about the rock and the hat, it led me down the search for other truths that I didn't know about because I've been in the church for over 50 years. I've raised six children in this church. I dragged six children to church every Sunday, 98 percent of the time completely by myself 
because my husband has always been in leadership positions. So he was always off at another ward, visiting another ward at some stake thing or whatever. And I dragged kids to church, sat by myself for over 48 years after I had my first baby. And so I, I feel like I was present enough to learn things that I should have learned. And so I had pictures in my home of Joseph Smith. Uh, I had quotes on my walls from Joseph Smith. And then I started to learn the true nature of Joseph Smith. And I'm not going to say my shelf broke because I didn't have a shelf. I had a well. I had an oh well, right? I didn't have a shelf because I wasn't gathering things before this. I was just throwing things off as an oh well, because what do they tell you? They tell you that when you have questions, when you have doubts, what do they say? Stay in the boat. So I didn't, I didn't have doubts. I had the understanding that it would all make sense someday. I didn't like it, but I didn't think that it was hidden or mischievous or um, there was some underlying current going on. I didn't think that. I thought these men were all called of God. So I just thought that, look, this is a principle that I don't like, like polygamy, but I, I don't know. I don't know. We're not, we don't have to do it right now, so I'm not going to worry about it right now it'll all figure itself out. I was totally following Dallin Oaks's thing where, eh, don't worry about it. Just don't worry about it. You'll find out in the next life. God will explain everything. It'll all make sense. So I would get angry and I would go, yeah, that's that. Yeah. But I was too busy to, to, to even create a shelf. I didn't have a shelf. I had six kids, right? My shelf was, was bleh. No, there was no shelf. There was no shelf going on. I had baseball games. I had dance practices. I had competitions and things to drag kids to. I didn't have time for shelf building. So today we're going to talk a little bit about some of the things that I found out when I was on my search. And I just want to ask you how you feel about them. What, what, how do you take this information in? Right? So let's get started. Let's go, let's go here and let's add this. All right. And I don't like that. Let me get rid of that. What's this? What's, what's going on? Oh, okay. Let me go bigger. I want to go bigger on the thing. And let's do. Yeah, let's. Okay. And I don't. Okay, wait. I got to get rid of that. I got to get rid of that background because that's distracting. So let's. There we go. That's a little bit better. Okay. So I want to start out when we landed in um, the Czech Republic, when we were in. Um, I think this was when we were in the, where the heck were we? Was this out of Dresden? This might've been out of Dresden. Anyway, this is uh, Teresa, Teresa, Theresienstadt. And this was a concentration camp. And this concentration camp was used to let the Red Cross come in and inspect. Word was getting out. People started finding out about the concentration camps. And um, so Hitler decides, look, let's let the Red Cross come in. We're going to doll this place up. We're going to set it up and we're going to make it look like this is a freaking retirement home. All right. Hold on for a second. 
I want to get, let's see if I still have this. I might have to make a little run into. Okay. Hold on. Just keep looking at the slide. I want to go get something. Okay, so um, one of the things I picked up at the gift shop after we toured this concentration camp was um, some pictures that the children in the, that were in the concentration camp drew. And I didn't put these on the slides, but I'm going to hold some of them up. So I don't know, there's a kind of a little bit of a reflection. These are some of the paintings that the children did. They, oh, it's amazing the, um, how clever and how, loving these people were in this concentration camp. They were so worried about the children. It says the, the Nazis transformed the town of Terezin, lying 60 kilometers north of Prague into a concentration camp at the end of 1941 until May of 1945, when Terezin was liberated by the Soviet army. 140,000 prisoners, mostly from Bohemia and Moravia, who were the victims of Nazi racial persecution passed through the camp. About 20% of these persons perished during World War II in Terezin itself. The majority of the others lost their lives in various Nazi extermination camps to which the prisoners from Terezin were gradually deported. The 4,000 children's drawings from the Terezin concentration camp now kept among the collection of the Jewish Museum in Prague testify to the tragic fate of the children imprisoned in these camps during the years 1941 and 1945. As many as 15,000 of these children, the overwhelming majority, perished as victims of fascism in the gas chambers of Auschwitz or other Nazi concentration camps. The children's drawings, deeply touching from the point of view of both their form and contents, originated on the basis of lessons organized together with other forms of secret teaching of the children by some imprisoned pedagogues and educationalists. And um, it just, it's just amazing that even in hard times like this, um, there were people that were concerned about the children. But so anyway, so at this particular concentration camp, they, they had people uh, set up to play soccer. Um, they were uh, putting on an orchestra. Um, they had people sitting on the edge of these bunk beds chatting away, knitting and crocheting. And so that when the Red Cross came in, they were like, what? There's nothing to see here. This is, this is just war and they're being treated really, really well, right? So, um, so that was, we, we toured a couple of concentration camps and um, it was interesting. Let's see if I can remember now. The concentration camps were kind of put into three different categories. They were either extermination camps like Auschwitz, labor camps, and I think this was a holding camp, if I remember correctly. But regardless, anyway, living conditions were, uh, were horrible. So I don't know if you could read this one, but in 1924, Adolf Hitler wrote that propaganda's task is not to make an objective study of the truth insofar as it favors the enemy and then set it before the masses with academic fairness. 
Its task is to serve our own right always and unflinchingly. Now, this was really, this was an eye opener for me when we went to Berlin, we went to the wall, we talked about different aspects of, of the Nazism and fascism and socialism. And when you're actually there and you talk to the people, one of our tour guides in Berlin lived behind the Iron Curtain as a child. And he talks about what his life was like. And it completely, there is no question. This is a, a, a young man, probably the age of one of my kids, who lived this. He lived this. You cannot argue with what this fascism did and how what the tools that Adolf Hitler used to convince the people that his way was going to save them from that evil communism, that his way was the way to go. And I like the way he says this. I mean, where have we heard this before? The pro propaganda's task is not to make an objective study of the truth insofar as it favors the enemy. Now, to me, this reminds me of what Boyd K. Packer said. We're only going to tell the faith-promoting stories. We're only going to tell the whitewash stories. We're going to hide all of the other history because we don't want to knock people's faith off. We don't want to discourage people. We want to make people happy. We want them to understand that what we're telling them is what they need to hear. Okay? So, of course, this is what I'm doing, this huge comparison the entire time that I'm in Berlin. Here was something that this was a German nursery song. We love our Fuhrer. We honor our Fuhrer. We follow our Fuhrer until men we are. We believe in our Fuhrer. We live for our Fuhrer. We die for our Fuhrer until heroes we are. This is a German nursery song. And Adolf Hitler in 1933 is quoted as saying, if the older generation cannot accustom cannot get accustomed to us, we shall take their children away from them and rear them as needful to the fatherland. I can't read that. And so what is the church doing right now? And I know you're, you're thinking this is an extreme, but if you really look at it, what is the church right now? The last President Oaks and Sister Oaks uh, speech was for the youth. The last firesides have been for the youth. They've already written off us old people. Baby boomers, you're gone, whatever. A lot of baby boomers aren't that knowledgeable in technology regardless, right? So they don't have to, they're, they're not worried about what we're doing, we're, whatever. What they're worried about is the number of young men there are, that are not serving missions, they're worried about the young men and women that are coming home early from their missions. President Oaks's talk was all about not marrying, not having large families. This is the people that they're worried about, the youth, just like Hitler was. And I remember talking about an oh well experience. I remember I've been primary president. Um, I've served in the primary for a number of years. I've sat in the audience while my kids participated in the primary program. And I remember laughingly thinking, this is a little bit weird. This is a little bit like indoctrination. But I kind of laughed it off, right? I laughed it off like, oh, 
collage. Just what does this look like? You know, because it can't be evil. It's not evil. Follow the prophet, follow the prophet, follow the prophet. He knows the way. What does that sound like? It sounds like that German nursery song. We love our Fuhrer. We love our Fuhrer. Doesn't it? It sounds the same. Okay. So, but I remember thinking that, but I didn't think it because it couldn't be. It couldn't be just like the people of Germany when Hitler told them stuff, they go, yeah, yeah, that has to be right. That has to be good. That, yeah, we're going to go along with that. That has to be good. All right, let's go on. So what's your oh well versus your hell no? Is it a rock in the hat? Is it polygamy? Is it the book of Abraham? Is it the priesthood ban? Is it the 2015 uh, baptism ban that Russell Nelson put in? What was it or is it that you are struggling with? Are you right now what they call a PIMO? Are you physically in but mentally out? And if so, what? What was it that made that happen for you? So again, what is the line in the sand for you? Is there a line in the sand? I, a couple of weeks ago, uh, in fact, I may have been in Germany and the Czech Republic, but doggone it, I did not miss my Mormonism live. No way, Jose. I made sure that I, and it was so frustrating because it's on Wednesday nights, right? In fact, what time is it? I got to hurry up and get this over with. It's on Wednesday nights. And, um, but I was like, you know, eight hours off. So I had to listen to it like on Thursday morning. And, but I listened to it. I listened to it both weeks I was gone. And, you know, when he's talking about when that caller came in and he's like, he asked them, basically, what is your line in the sand? What would the prophet have to say for you to go, oh, no, absolutely not. Was it 150 years of the priesthood ban? Evidently not. It wasn't for me. I'm a white middle class person living in the suburbs. Didn't really affect me. I didn't think, certainly these kind, wonderful old men could not be wrong. I didn't understand God. I, I'm just a lowly mom. I'm just a mom. I'm 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 an interior designer. I can tell you what color you should paint your walls and where you should put your duvet, how many pillows you should have on your bed. I can tell you that. I can't tell you anything about this other stuff. I'm going to let God and all those other guys take care of it. That's where I was at. Oh my gosh. Okay. So let's let's talk about some of this. So we've got our rock in the hat. Now, as I said before, I um I didn't have any knowledge of a rock in the hat. And that really was my, I'm not going to say a shelf breaker. It was my mind. Like what, 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 what? And I came out and I asked my ex-bishop husband, my ex-member uh, of the stake presidency husband, have you ever, did you know that Joseph Smith actually translated the Book of Mormon through a hat, a stone and a hat? He's like, what are you talking about? I've never heard that. He's never heard that. He was in the stake presidency. He was a bishop. He counseled with people. He had never heard that. All right. So that was my, oh, oh, really? What the heck else? Well, now, now, because that knowledge is out, you've got Russell M. Nelson up here in the right-hand corner that's 
He's demonstrating for Pete's sake. He's taking his hat. He's putting his head in and he's like, yeah, well, we told you that. We've been telling you that for years. If you didn't know that, that's your fault, right? And then we've got, you know, we've got Mormon, Moroni. We've got all these prophets that are writing on these gold plates. But hmm, I remember thinking, isn't that funny? The more historical information that I dragged up about the timeline and did people write on gold plates and what? Joseph Smith didn't actually use the gold plates. He used a rock to translate the Book of Mormon. And by the way, there's no such thing as Reformed Egyptian. I mean, the list goes on and on. So th this was kind of, kind of the beginning, right? So were they hiding historical truths? And I spelled were wrong, so don't get on me, all right? Were they hiding historical truths? Now, according to um, uh, Elder Ballard, they've never hidden things. Well, I found out through, through some reading and some research that they actually did hide. They, um, you know, they took out one of the testimonies of the first vision and hid it in, in a vault and, and nobody knew about it. And then they all, you know, historians knew that there were many versions of the first vision, but I didn't know about that. They didn't talk about that in Sunday school. Now, let me see if I can, um, why can't I get this like really big? Let me see. No, it's not working. All right. Well, I'm not going to be able to read that. Come on, give me a break. Um, I, I've got my contacts in, but I can't read it. Well, shoot. Can you read it? How do I make this bigger? Do, 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 do. And how come I can't make this bigger? I want, oh, wait, wait, wait. There's another box. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, there we go. All right. I don't know if I can still read it or not. I might have to go get my glasses for this one, actually. Um, I skipped a slide. So basically what this is, is when I, one of the things that I found out when I was researching was about the Relief Society and how it was organized and who were, you know, who, who were the sisters that actually uh, initially organized it. And then Joseph Smith came in and was like, no, 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 no. Let me, let me, let me set this straight. Let me tell you ladies what you're going to do here. It sounds like every freaking high council meeting there is where the women have done all the work. They come into the high council meeting and the, and you know, the counselor, whoever's been assigned to be over the young women goes, yeah, no, we're not going to do it that way. We're going to do it this way. And that's basically what happened with Relief Society. Um, you know, Eliza Snow, Sarah, I can't remember. Anyway, they had this whole thing figured out. They were going to start this women's organization. And Joseph Smith comes in and goes, no, no, no. What we're going to do is we're going to make Emma the president. And, um, and this is what you're going to do. And this is what your logo and your motto is going to be. And, and it completely like, you know, told the women what they were going to do. And from what I've understood, the purpose of the Relief Society was basically so that Emma Smith could find out what was going on with what the women knew about polygamy. Now, what she did not know was that those sweet sisters who were sitting in front of her, half of them, now that's a statistic I can't back up, a majority, a lot, okay, let's just say a lot of the women that were sitting in front of her were um, already married to Joseph Smith behind her back. Now, when I heard that, I was like, that's a hell no for me. Because if my husband was having an affair, 
calling it a revelation from God, telling me that God told him that it was okay for him to have 34 wives, that, um, you know, that he loves me and that he didn't want to do this. He didn't want to do this, but God told him that he needed to do this. That would be a hell no. Good luck. Have fun with your 34 other women. I'm out of here. I know I would do that. I know I would do that. Emma Smith, and he knew, he knew that she was not okay with it. So she, he lied. Lie number two, he lied and took these women and those sweet, obedient women went along with it. Where was their integrity? That's how much they believed he was a prophet. Now, I'm not going to say that they didn't love Emma but I will say, where was their integrity? Because there were women that turned Joseph Smith down. There were, and I don't even know if I, they were young women, young women that said, hell no, I'm not doing that. I don't care what kind of an angel appeared to you. It's not going to happen. All right. So, and here's the other thing that I found out through polygamy about polygamy was that it was um, this whole idea. I mean, when you talk to people, what I this is what I used to understand about polygamy. I used to believe polygamy was to take care of the widows. There were more women than there were men. Um, that they they were taking care of the widows and um, the young unmarried women, and this was just a way of repopulating. That the women loved it. That it was a sisterhood. And then I read a house of females. And then I read um, Sacred Loneliness. And then I read um, Wife Number 19. And I found out that that's not true. It's not true. Now, I'm not saying that there weren't women that went along with it because, hello, sisters, there's women right now that are going along with everything that the prophets say. Unquestionably, they're going along with it. There might even be a few women out there that are like, I don't like this. This makes me so mad. But I'm going to go along with it. Okay, that's exactly where these women were. They believed that he was a prophet and they went along with it. And so um, but but when people say, look, the women loved it, it was a great thing. You haven't done your history research. And the other thing was the other the other thing people will say is um, that this was very common in 1830. Twelve and 14 year olds were getting married right and left. Well, that's not true. Statistically, they've proven that with through the census data, they've proven that guess what? There weren't 12 and 14 year olds and 15 year olds getting married. And if there were, which there were a few, but if they were, they weren't marrying 37 year old men that were already married. They were marrying 17 and 18 year old boys. Okay. They were married 19 year old boys. They weren't marrying 58 year old men. All right. Unless you happen to be a royal member of the family in Vienna and then you might have been pledged and there might have been some um, intermarriages. But that's a completely different storyline. Right. So, you know, it almost makes me think, did you think that you were a royal dynasty because you were now going to marry 12 and 13 year olds? I mean, because that's what the royals were doing. I don't know. I don't know what the time, time you know, timeline was. So this is just the information I have here was just about when Brigham Young dissolved after the um, the uh, murder of Joseph Smith. I'm not going to say martyrdom because he wasn't martyred. He was murdered um, because of some things that he did. And so it, when Brigham Young was he was angry. He and Emma Smith did not get along. They basically hated each other's guts. And Brigham Young blamed Emma for Joseph Smith's death. And if you watch the Jane and Emma movie, 
Um, they show a little bit about this, but I love this because they really don't tell the full story of Jane. Again, it's another whitewash thing. Uh, does anybody, do any of you know that Jane was eventually sealed by proxy to Joseph Smith as a slave for all eternity? Did you hear that in conference last time? I don't think so. Um, they might say, oh, she was sealed to Joseph Smith. They don't say she was sealed by proxy because she wasn't allowed in the temple and that she was sealed as a slave. This is another hidden truth, right? So um, many, many things about polygamy that I've learned. I learned a lot of these things through the year of polygamy by Lindsay Hansen Park. I can't, I cannot stress her, her podcast. Um, it was a wonderful, I spent over a year listening to her podcasts and learning the truth. And I have to tell you, I'm very, very picky about the podcasts that I listen to. I listen to podcasts that are primarily about historical truths. I don't listen to a lot of podcasts that are just interviewing people that have left the church and why they left the church and all of this kind of stuff. I mostly concentrate on data and historical truths um, because that's what I'm interested in. I do listen to a few um, because I relate. I relate to some of them. I try to, I listen to those that have left the church that are in my demographic because there's not a lot of us out there. Um, but primarily it's why I love Mormonism Live uh, because they usually are centered on historical data. And that's one of the reasons why I just absolutely love them. So let's move on here. Okay, so we've talked about Emma. And I want to bring I want to bring this slide up. Okay. How many of you are listening to the podcast and the YouTube Mormonish with Landon and Rebecca? How many of you are listening to that? It's so fun. First of all, why is it fun? Well, because again, it's usually data. It's very, it's, it's usually historical or they do book reviews. Um, but hello, sister, it's another female voice. It's another podcast with a female voice. And Rebecca and I have done podcasts together. And it's so fun just to hear and, and see the respect that's given to Rebecca and, and her and Landon are just a kick, but they just did one on the priesthood ban. And um, I remember believing that the priesthood ban was a revelation that was given from God and nobody really knew why. David O. McKay, you know, he, he really didn't like it, but he prayed and he prayed and he prayed and and he just never got an answer. He, he wanted to get an answer, but doggone, he couldn't get an answer. Well, then you start looking into the historical truths. And so these are some of the clips that uh, Landon and Rebecca had on their uh, Mormonish podcast. And if you, you got to go back and watch it, all right? It was on just last night or the night before, so it's very new. But um, in 1959, Spencer Kimball assigned as responsibility, he was assigned as responsible over Brazil. So they're opening up a mission, right? In 1959, I was five years old. A second mission opened in Northeast Brazil. Only 10 to 20% of the population could be investigators. Why? Because of the priesthood ban, because of the one drop policy. If they went in to a um, very kind of diverse group of people and then maybe they went into a home and they thought to themselves gosh you know what is the ethnicity of this family i really can't tell 
are they black? I don't know. They're very light skinned. So, you know, can we teach, can we teach these people? Because the policy was if there's one drop of African-American blood, they could not be baptized. Now, like Rebecca pointed out in the podcast, it wasn't even so much that they couldn't hold the priesthood. It affected the entire family. You could be baptized, but you couldn't go to the temple. You could not be sealed for time and all eternity. It was strictly an earthly thing. You can be baptized. And so you, you, you can give us 10% of your income. So that's all we need. And um, people don't think about that. They think about the priesthood ban that it affected the men only, but no, it affected the entire family. Well, this became a problem there. They want to build a temple in Brazil. They can't teach anybody. They can baptize people, but they don't know who they can baptize, who they can't baptize. And Spencer Kimball is like, what the heck is going on? What are we going to do about this? And so he's really struggling. So in 1963, Kimball recognizes the ban. Maybe, maybe this isn't such a good idea. This was in 1963. Plus, all the civil rights stuff is going on in the United States, right? And um, in 1966, the first stake was formed in Brazil. Now you've got a stake. Who, who are the priesthood holders in this stake? I don't know. This is becoming a problem, right? Okay. So in 1969, Hubie Brown states that the ban is a policy and policies can be changed. Now, I don't know where Hubie Brown got this idea or why he thought it was okay to suddenly declare a revelation a policy and not a doctrine, but that seems to be the protocol. That's the, you know, that was the precedent maybe for this whole new new idea that if we don't like something, we'll just change it and call it a, a policy and not a doctrine. Um, so in 1969, Hubie Brown, he's he's very you know nuanced, and he he decides that maybe maybe we can change this thing. I don't know. And Hubie Brown convinces David O. McKay that he can ordain Monroe Fleming to the priesthood and McKay agrees. Now, President McKay, again, mentally, he was kind of going downhill now and, and people took advantage of him. Ezra Taft Benson is, um, he will always go down in my mind as just evil. He, Ezra Taft Benson in my mind was evil. And where do I get that idea? I get that idea because I was alive when Ezra Taft Benson was the prophet. I heard his talks that asked the women to stay home and to come home and that our only job was to be mothers. And I understand, and I just could feel that this man was not a prophet of God. There was an, there was a selfish narcissism. Uh, and then when I read a book that you can just jump in your car right now and toddle off to Deseret books and buy it on the, on the, on the shelves right now, it's called The Biography of David O. McKay. And Ezra Taft Benson took advantage of David O. McKay's um, mental status and tried to get him to uh, give him permission to run for, um, uh, he wanted to be on the ticket with George Wallace. George Wallace, Go Google George Wallace and find out where he stood as far as civil rights go. He wanted to run with him as I believe vice president. And David O. McKay was like, and that, no, that's not going to happen. You're an apostle. It's not going to happen. Um, he went behind David O. McKay's back and was very involved with the John Birch Society, even though David O. McKay had asked him not to. 
And so people took advantage of David O. McKay. I think his, not only, they took advantage of his kindness and they took advantage of um, his mental status. And so uh, when, but Harold B. Lee was a racist. And when he found out and he was furious and he and Joseph Fielding Smith, another racist, put a stop to it, saying it requires unanimous agreement from the Q15. So this is back in 1969, where suddenly this new law comes into to effect that it has to be a unanimous vote. So now what happens is if they're not unanimous, they basically get down to, well, look, I know we can't all agree with this, but I'm the boss and this is how it's going to be. And when you guys walk out this door, what you're going to say is we all agreed to this. So that's the new rule. Um, and so uh, in 1970, Hubie Brown is released from the first presidency when Smith assumes presidency due to his stand on the priesthood ban. So if any of you remember when um, Uchtdorf was released, when Nelson took over and he brought Dallin Oaks in and Henry B. Eyring and he got rid of Uchtdorf. And this was the first time that it happened that a counselor had been fired since 1970, Hubie Brown, when Hubie Brown was released. So Harold B. Lee, when he's made profit, he's like, yeah, you, you are going back to the field here. Um, th they didn't like each other and they had completely different political ideas and they had different civil rights ideas. So, um, you know, I, I tried when I first started uh, trying to find out more truths I tried to find as many church affirming books, things that I could find at Deseret um, that I could like uh, Rough Stone Rolling. And, um, I, but then I read um, No Man Knows My History and David O. McKay biography and The Priesthood and Gay's, uh, uh, the Proposition 8 book by Gregory Prince. And I tried to read as many things as I could that were written by members of the church. And um, then I just thought, okay, I, I'm just delving full on. So these are some of the things. These are some of the things. And now get this. Harold B. Lee was then made prophet. He gets rid of Hubie Brown. Harold B. Lee is made prophet. And this is one of his other revelations where he said, this privilege of obtaining a mortal body on this earth is seemingly so priceless that those in the spirit world, even though unfaithful or not valiant, were undoubtedly permitted to take mortal bodies, although under penalty of racial or physical or nationalistic imitations. That's our prophet. That's our prophet who went out and said that people that have uh, a, a body that's disabled in any way, that they were unfaithful in the spirit world. And they were told, you want a body? I'll give you a body, but yeah, it's not gonna really work very well, but that's all you deserve. That's our prophet. Follow the prophet. So when you have things that happened in the in the late, you know, in the 70s, which wasn't that long ago, people, I know it sounds like it, but when you have people, uh, people that claim to be seers, revelators and prophets, but this is what they're saying. Um, then you have the 2015 um, when uh, Monson is also like David O. McKay mentally, he's out. And so Nelson is taking over and thinking, this is my time. Um, I'm going to claim that the prophet told us to do this, but in reality, this is our little committee that got together. And they did the, um, the ban on um, the LBGTQ families. And, uh, and then three years later, they had to recant it because people were like, we're out of here. So, I mean, come on, come on. What do you have to hear before you finally go, oh, no, I'm not doing this. 
So that's what my podcast is about. I kind of wanted to explain to people the reason why I resigned my membership. Um, I want you to ask yourself, what other system would you belong to that you would sit and listen to things that touch you in your integrity and your morals that make you cringe, that make you question truths, that make you go, oh gosh, I don't know if I believe that or not, but I'm going to stay anyway. And I'm not only going to stay, I'm going to give you 10% of my income and I'm going to give you 20 hours a week of my time, even though I don't think that's right. Tell me another system that you follow. Tell me another club that you belong to, that that's your policy. I don't, I don't believe in the, in, in their, in their um, rhetoric. Um, I think that there's a patriarchy that is hurting, uh, hurting uh, people of color and women. I think there's a lot of misogyny. I think that uh, the money is being mishandled, but that's okay. That's okay. I, I, you know, whatever. It's fine. It's good. Look at the good that it does. You know, show me another system that you belong to that, that has those same guidelines. I'd love to hear it. So comment, send me an email, comment on uh, shebecamevisible.org. And by the way, donate to shebecamevisible.org. Take that little 10% and give it to shebecamevisible.org and it will be used for good. So I don't know how many of you, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get off right now because I'm going to, Turn to Mormonism Live. I don't miss it. I try to watch it every week. Sometimes, sometimes if I've had a really busy day, I fall asleep. Yeah, I know. 6, 6.30, 7 o'clock at night, I fall asleep. Yeah, because you know why? I can. Because I'm retired and our children are gone. Woohoo! So, um, and then I have to listen to it the next day. And sometimes I start listening to it while I'm getting dressed and I end up having to listen to it in the car. Because, and sometimes I listen to it, even if I've watched the whole thing, I listen to it again in the car. Okay. I love it. Because why? Because I'm learning. It's not just a fun podcast. It's a learning tool. And that's what I love about it. So I'm going to get off so that uh, Bill and RFM can do their thing on Wednesday night. And I hope you enjoyed this. And I really hope that it made you think a little bit. I mean, how many O-Wells do you have to swallow before you go, I can't do this. I can't do this anymore. It only took two or three for me. And I think because I had a severely disabled child that I was getting dressed and taking to church for 37 years by myself, because I had bishops that were misogynists that um, as stake young women's president, uh, I had a stake president that his wife, I'm, I'll just say it, his wife was a biatch, all right? And she hated me. And when we first moved to this area, our son got put on the varsity basketball team and she was pissed. She was pissed that this new kid came in. And from that point on, she hated our family, right? So she was a, in the Young Women's Presidency in her ward, and I was the state Young Women's President. And she would literally, now this woman at the time was probably my age right now. She was probably, she was at least in her late 50s. And she would sit on the front row and talk the entire time that I was conducting a state Young Women's meeting. She would like this, you know? And there was one time when I had to say, um, which I'm sorry, could, which, could you just 
keep it down a little bit. I don't know if anybody can hear me. And she just looked at me like, you know, whatever. And so I went and talked to the stake president. I said, you know what, this, this isn't going to work. I mean, she, I know she doesn't support me and she's kind of causing trouble. And he's like, look, I don't get involved in my wife's stuff. He knew that she was a force to be reckoned with. So it was like, too bad, so sad. Deal with it, babe. And, um, you know, I had bishops that as a visiting teacher, I would work with sisters. Then I would go in and I would talk to the bishop and I would tell them and they would be like, well, that's not what her husband's saying. I'm like, okay, well, are you going to take any of this information in? No. I had bishops that... Um, you know, they, I would, I was primary president. I would go in with a list of people that I wanted to, to call as counselors. And they would say, yeah, no, what I was thinking is we're going to put in sister so-and-so. I was like, oh, okay. So, you know, I was, I, and I, I think I primarily, I saw misogyny like that, but I really saw misogyny when my husband, um, no matter whether my son was struggling physically, surgeries, um, other problems that we were, you know, dealing with with our kids. And there was absolutely, uh, I mean, our child was born. He was an emergency cesarean and uh, taken up to Oregon Health Science and was only given a 20% chance of uh, living. And um, he, my husband faithfully attended his stake meetings. That's what he was told. You will receive blessings if you do your calling. So that's the kind of misogyny that I had to put up with. Um, fortunately, I have a loving, wonderful husband that I can forgive and forget because I knew that he was doing what he was also taught. You know, patriarchy hurts both people. And he was doing what he was told. And he was doing what he thought was best for our family. So I can easily forgive him. What I can't forgive is the understanding and the teaching that it's okay to leave your family. And you learn that when you do historical research into polygamy, that that policy has been in effect since Emma Smith was burying her babies and pregnant when her husband was killed and begged him to come back, come back. When he, when he and Hiram ran away because they were going to be arrested. And she said, everybody's calling you a coward. You need to come back. I'm pregnant. I have kids. You have a family come back and stand up like a man. So he came back and he got arrested. And so that's why Brigham Young blamed her for his death. But that policy of leaving your family, leaving your kids, leaving your wife has been in since day one. So there's my rant. There you go. Anyway. All right. Hurry up right now. Finish listening to this. Send me an email, make a comment, and then go listen to Mormonism Live. All right. All right. Have a great night. Bye-bye. Thank you.